KFBS. Radio 2. with Christopher Lee. Chris Whitehead with the news there. Thank you very much. Hello. You're all very welcome here at the Sitrep Roundtable. And within this hour, Afghanistan promises, promises, promises. But we're in for the long haul. 15 years, if you're just starting. Yemen promises, promises, promises again. But who can deliver? The Blair Witch Trial. Not many friends left in court, are there? Northern Ireland, the sadness of a generation ignored. And just to cheer everyone up, the Sarah Paling quote of the week. But you'll have to stay with us for the next until the end of this hour. For the very bitter end for that gem. And with me at the sit round round table, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, from Chatham House, Ginny Hill, who runs the Yemen Forum at that place, and the director of the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, Professor Mike Clark. Well, they've gathered. Uh, the good and the great are here in London to see where we go from here in Afghanistan. Um, Mike Clark, I mean, they're just hanging around, aren't they, at the moment? Because they've, they've actually decided what they're going to say at the end of it. Well, all these meetings have got uh, communiques more or less pre-written, just in case something else, uh, in, unless something else happens. Uh, I was speaking to somebody last night and I said, <clears throat> do you know what Karzai's going to say? And this foreign office official said to me, well, we've seen a text, but that doesn't guarantee that that's what he will say. Um, but the fact is that this meeting is trying to move the process on. I mean, I would say that, you know, the coalition hasn't been in Afghanistan for eight years. It's been there for one year, eight times. And there's a sort of groundhog year phenomenon. And there is some optimism, some that this conference will be the beginning of a moving on process. And remember, it's not just this conference. It comes on the back of the meeting in Istanbul that was going on this week, the whole new military strategy, a whole series of bilateral initiatives. So I think that we could be reasonably optimistic that, although I don't think the communique will say anything terribly surprising, that underneath that there may be some greater motivation among the international community to back up the military strategy with a, with a more coordinated civilian and governance response. Yeah, John Dickey, it's... The, the word is reconciliation, is it? I mean, in the, the, I mean, the, in, the, in the crudest sense, look, by the disaffected, try and split Taliban, um, and they're going to buy them with jobs, etc. And I can't figure out what jobs they're going to give them and who's going to pay them, whether they're going to pay them directly. Because if they pay them directly, they'll be off like a flash of whatever up back to the hills, won't they? I don't want to sound cynical, because, you know, you I'm not do. cynical you by nature, do. but I reckon that to expect in a matter of a few hours to really get into substantial changes in the drama of uh, Afghanistan is expecting far too much. I had to spend 14 weeks with Lord Carrington trying to solve the Rhodesia problem to give independence to Zimbabwe in the same place in Lancaster House. I think it's expecting a lot. The question now is, can you buy loyalty? You can buy short-term loyalty, but how long will it last? Well, this the Saxons problem. did, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, well, Dane Gelder. Yeah, they always say you you you, you, <clears throat> you can't buy <throat> Afghan fighters, but you can rent them. Yes, and that is and that is that is if you've got that idea in your head, then you begin <clears throat> to understand a bit. Absolutely about yeah. Afghanistan, yeah. don't you? I, you, you? You do. <clears throat> the the other thing is that uh, uh, John's not cynical, of course, but um, does it make you wonder whether you actually need this conference? Well, there's good and bad reasons for this conference. I mean, the good reasons are that we do need more motivation in the civilian responses to Afghanistan. The bad reasons, of course, are that this is a Downing Street wheeze uh, at the beginning of an election process. And, is it and, a cynical sense? Well, I mean, that was an element of it. And we know that the way it was set up certainly irritated the United Nations, it irritated the Americans, which is not a, a particularly good idea. But the meeting is taking place and some of it's been, as it were, shifted onto the Yemeni problem. Um, but it's better that the meeting is is being that the meeting is taking place than that it isn't. Yeah, I mean, if you look at these sort of things, um, 
you get an idea, don't you, Ginny, that I mean, th- these meetings are never bad because they don't break up, break up normally in chaos. I mean, I, and the one in, in Northern Ireland did yesterday. But generally meetings, especially in the Middle East, where they, people are used to having meetings, they well. Well, there's a similar sense of optimism that's, been, that's come out of yesterday's meeting on Yemen. And again, the same process. A lot of the work was done ahead of the main meeting. I think what's different here about Yemen is that we haven't seen this level of sustained, um, high-level engagement on Yemen. This is unprecedented for Yemen, whereas Afghanistan has been in the international spotlight consistently over the last 10 years. So there is a slight difference. The other difference that exists here between Yemen and Afghanistan is that the government in Yemen has been in place for 30 years, whereas in Afghanistan, the West has been working with a government that was installed in a post-conflict situation. And yet a lot of the same tensions are present in Yemen. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting, you say, the American Secretary of State, uh, Hillary Clinton, she said uh, she congratulated the, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister for uh, producing a report which showed that the country was almost, you know, gone for a ball of chalk. And I mean, that's, I think that's a bit scary, isn't it? You're trying to sort out a problem when you've got a, a country that's in utter, utter decline. Well, the word that was used consistently yesterday was partnership. And I think one of the problems has been potentially the Yemeni government hasn't quite been willing to engage in an honest discussion about where the country was at. So I think it, it does represent a step forward that there is now a, a, a degree of acceptance potentially amongst the Yemeni decision makers about the nature of the challenges that the country faces. Yeah. But, but given the amount of um, Western uh, aid and technical assistance that's been going into Yemen for the last couple of years, it, presumably it might now embarrass the Yemeni government in front of its own people, mightn't it, that they are, that they are on the radars of the United <laughs> States in particular. Well, there's lots of different tensions in, in the Yemeni agenda. The Western aid budget is very small compared to the Arab states, the Gulf states, but the Gulf states haven't actually followed through on many of their development pledges. So one of the points coming out of this meeting was to try to kickstart the process involving Yemen's neighbours who belong to the much richer bloc of the Gulf Operation Council countries. So uh, the, the, there's going to be a follow-up meeting in Riyadh in February where some of the details of this will be um, ironed out. Yeah, and what a present summer over the last 30 years. There's not been able to establish his authority over the whole country. And he's Although he's been there for 31 years. Yeah, when I saw him 25 years ago, he was saying he was in charge, but obviously he's still not in charge. And well, to, have a a, man, though, well, to have 20 million of a population, half them under 15, most of them unemployed, he's got a lot of work to do, even with partnership. Mm. I mean, I, I mean I, again, not being cynical, um, uh, does he, uh, I wonder, Jenny, does he actually need to do anything, really? Can't he just keep things going as they are? Well, the underlying challenge here is the economy, because... Yemen is heavily dependent on revenue from oil sales. Hasn't got much oil, has Well, it? within five to ten years, Yemen is due to hit zero oil, depending on which projections you choose. So if we have concerns about security and stability in Yemen now, in five years' time, the situation looks set to be much, much Failed more state. complicated. So this is why there's a sense of urgency underpinning the debate about Yemen at the moment. But state building is a very long-term project. This is one of the tensions. Can I just um, ask... Um, uh, something which is far more about the British troops. I mean, when when President Karzai said, you know, it could be 10, 15 years, uh, Mike, um, 
We've always assumed that, haven't we? There's going to have to be a long-term presence. It shouldn't yes. be a surprise. Yeah, and that's not inconsistent with what other people are saying. I mean, the, the person who's inconsistent on this um, with the rest of us is, is uh, President Obama, because he has to say that you know there are there are sort of uh, doors in the situation that we can leave you know before 2012. Well, of course we can't. And and the the the, the realistic scenario is that there have to be about four to five hundred thousand security forces in Afghanistan in a population 25 million. You don't you can't do it with a number of less than about 400,000. That's, that's almost like a law of physics. Um, and you can only have that 400,000 if the ANA and ANP training, the Army and Police training, is increased, is doubled to what it now is, and there's about 120,000 other forces there. And so that will be the situation until about 2014, 2015 possibly. But after that, and hopefully after 2014, then the, the Western troops that are there will be able to stand down, as it were, um, and Afghan forces will step up to the plate. But Western forces in training and mentoring role will be there in not huge numbers, but significant numbers for quite some time. And that's what President Karzai is talking about. So, so you, you, have, you have to ar arrive at this 400,000 figure by about 2011, uh, 2012 at the very latest, as quickly as you can. And the figure is, the, the idea is that that 400,000 will be increasingly made up of Afghans and less and less made up of Western forces. But a lot of people, John, are saying that it's this year that matters. If it's, if it's, if it's going to fall apart, mm -hmm. it's this year it'll fall apart. Of course, for all sorts of reasons, not least for political reasons, because Obama's got midterm elections coming up. Karzai doesn't have midterm elections. He's got a long time to play for. But well, he's got his elections Obama coming up wants in results September, coming. isn't it? Yes, but he's still to organise a government. He's, he's half his cabinet still unformed. But uh, in terms for Obama's uh, public uh, credibility, he's got to be seen to be making progress in the short term. Right. I mean, uh, the point is, yeah, Obama's mm -hmm. got to, he's got to be able to hold out the prospects that this is going to, going to be a success. And if he can't show that by the end of 2011, then he's going to have a really tough job in the election year of 2012. So as we know, American electoral politics will dominate his agenda. Of course they will. But that's not inconsistent with what's happening. It's just that it needs a bit of finessing. So there has to be progress during 2010, 2011, with a, a sense that, that, that Western forces will start to draw down significantly in 2014. Can I just, uh, just throw this up? Um, we've got a big conference in London... Um, whatever the reasons, whether it's about the British general election or not, doesn't matter. We've got a big conference. And a lot of people who wouldn't normally get to have a say and might be asked to put in a bit of money, for example, will get there. Yes. And they'll get, you know, they'll get the chicken supper. But this is a regional problem, isn't it? Really? Yes. One of the things that this conference is going to try to do is to create this variable geometry because the players who have to be involved in this is not only the international community who are involved in Afghanistan itself. 43 nations. 43. The, the 43 tribes of ISAF, as they're often yes. called. Then you've got, um, you've got the, the, the regional players. I mean, Pakistan is extraordinarily important. Uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and so on. You've got those regional neighbours. But then the, 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 the diplomatic atmosphere is set effectively by you know, India, Saudi Arabia, China. Somehow you've got to engage with those countries. And so there's a lot of variable geometry going on here. And one of the questions a lot of us have is, is there going to be some sort of contact group um, of diplomatic uh, foursome, as it were, or something like that, that would actually lead the diplomatic coordination. Problem with that is it would look too Western. It would look too yeah. British-American. So probably we're going to live with this variable geometry, which will be very messy. Except there was one instinct about, and that is for the first time, the British have formally recognised the importance of 
um, the reconstruction effort in parallel with the security effort, and that's why Mark Sedwell has been appointed. He's, now, a, he's the charge. He's moment, a very great guy. Ambassador uh, he, he was the private secretary to Robin Cook, private secretary to uh, Jack Straw, served in Iraq, was uh, a member of the weapons inspection team for a year, and he was deputy uh, high commissioner in Pakistan. Now, explain so, exactly what he's going to do. So he's going to be trying to coordinate all the reconstruction efforts. The trouble until now is that a lot of the NGOs, a lot of the uh, donor nations, have been competing with another and been duplicating their efforts in some cases. So he will be charged with coordinating the efforts to produce the reconstruction, to produce the educational facilities, the other nation-building facilities at all levels, the local level, a tribal level, as well but, as the interna- international well, level. All of that's great. Because Mark mm. Sedwell, mm. as John mm. says, is a very bright guy. Mm. Um, and he's mm. the NATO senior representative. Mm. So he will represent NATO as a civilian. That's great. But <clears> not <throat> militarily. Exactly, no. civilian. But you see, what this looks like increasingly is a British-American operation. Because you've got Stanley McChrystal, mm. his key advisor is Graham Lamb, ex-British general. His senior representative is now the, the, ex, the British ambassador in Kabul. His, his main military conduit in RC South, in, which is where the battle is going to be fought in the next 12 months, is Nick Carter. His yes. deputy commander... is a major general. Major general. Is Nick, uh, and his deputy commander is Nick Parker. So you've got a group of, of American and British generals at the top with a key British advisor at the top, all of which is fine, and these are good people that Stanley McChrystal wants around him. But it's starting to look like a British-American operation, and it won't be surprising if some of our uh, other European NATO partners start to get a bit fed up about this. Although the Germans have just said we're going to put some more in. They'll put a few and more troops into But they'll put money in as into well. Well. And they'll put some more troops and 50 million for this. But they'll put some more troops into Condon's because mm. they've got yeah. problems up in Condon's. Just before we shift, because I want to really go and talk about uh, the Chilcot inquiry, Iraq mm. inquiry in a second. Um, just, just a thought, Jenny. If, if I'm sitting down in the Gulf in your patch uh, and I look about the possibility that a surge or whatever is disrupting things in <laughs> Pakistan, Afghanistan. And then I look what's happening in uh, Yemen. Do I say this is getting too close? Well, we, we've already seen al-Qaeda structures in Yemen grow as a result. Not, there was a jailbreak in Yemen in 2006 when more than 20 of the key suspects escaped and reconstituted themselves. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia, Iraq and increasingly Pakistan, the security successes in, in those countries have wound up driving people into Yemen because it's seen as being a more hospitable environment. And there's the same quest now for a regional response to the Yemen problem, which doesn't just include Saudi Arabia and the other members of the Gulf states, but also Somalia, because Yemen is one of the main sources of arms to Somalia. And the number of Somalis coming across the Gulf of Aden to Yemen now as refugees is doubling every year. So the, the strategy for Yemen is going to require some regional thinking, which also includes Africa. The art we're looking at runs from Kenya right through Saudi Arabia up through to Afghanistan. Kabul, dear boy, think about it. It's, Kabul has very, very broad suburbs, hasn't it? Um, I want to talk about the, uh, the Iraq inquiry. It's chaired by the very agreeable personality, former Northern Ireland Permanent Undersecretary Sir John Kilcock. Sir John Chilcott, which is why it's sometimes called the Chilcott Inquiry. We're all waiting for tomorrow, I suppose, and the appearance of the former Prime Minister Tony Blair. But this week, this week has really seen a whole troop of warm-up acts, and some of it not exactly singing Mr Blair's signature tune. Here's Jamie Gordon. 
Des Brown appeared first and spoke of the personal strain of dealing with the British casualties. He also conceded that service families were less than impressed about him being Scottish secretary simultaneously. And John Hutton said the death toll amongst Iraqis had been disastrous, but the invasion was justified as Iraq was now a democracy. But he said a shortage of helicopters was a factor in the campaign. Then on Tuesday and Wednesday, it was the turn of the lawyers, and Sir Michael Wood, the former chief legal advisor at the Foreign Office, was very clear that Jack Straw, the Foreign Secretary at the time, had ignored his legal advice. We had a bilateral meeting at which he took the view that I was being very dogmatic and that international law was pretty vague. He'd often been advised things were unlawful and he'd gone ahead anyway and won in the courts, this kind of a... Of a line. Later the same day, the turn of Elizabeth Wilmshurst, who resigned as an FCO lawyer in protest at the war. She criticised the manner in which the government considered legal arguments for the invasion, saying it was extraordinary that the Attorney-General was only asked for his opinion days before the conflict. I think that the process that was followed in this case was lamentable, and there should be, have been a greater transparency within government about the evolving legal advice so that it wasn't left entirely to the Attorney-General alone right at the end to have the say. And then yesterday, Lord Goldsmith, who had the final say on legal matters, was called before the inquiry. Critics of the war have suggested that Lord Goldsmith changed his mind between the 6th of March 2003, when he issued draft advice urging the need for a second resolution, and the 13th of March, when he concluded the action was justified on the basis of existing resolutions. Following my investigation of the negotiating history, I was of the view that a reasonable case could be made the, I'm sorry, there was a reasonable case that a second resolution was not mm. necessary mm. And, and, that, and that that was, uh, on past precedent, sufficient to constitute a green light. Tomorrow, it's the one they've all been waiting for. At 9.30, the former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, will tell the Iraq inquiry his side of the story. Jamie Gordon, reporting for CITREP. Jamie Gordon, thank you very much indeed. We're listening and watching the BBC's World Service political correspondent, and recently the BBC's Defence, Washington, and UN correspondent, Rob Watson. I mean, I, I say that again, Rob, because with that track, track record, you've watched this story from day one, haven't you? Absolutely. And I've got to say, Christopher, I'm not sure if this is the right point to bring it in. but uh, is. <laughs> but I, I got a, a, an email or a text last night from someone who used to be a very senior UN weapons inspector and a, was a former CIA employee as well. I was sitting on the train le- reading it and it said, you know, I, I guess you've all been having lots of fun watching this, but remember about the context. So I was rather stung by that. I guess his point was, you know, you were there. You remember what everybody thought about Iraq. It's very easy to be critical now. So I, I guess I've been chastised and I've been trying to bear that in mind as I, as I watch Mr. Blair tomorrow. But it's a very good point because when you consider that we'll watch Mr. Blair tomorrow, we've got to remember that he was uh, the American nation's favourite son, wasn't he, at the time, after, after 9-11. And he had, he, had a, quite a, he was on quite a roll anyway. And so what he might have promised or not promised or whatever, see it in that context rather than in the Queen Elizabeth II Hall at Westminster. I, I, I think so. And, and really, we had some aspects of this defence, really. I think we discussed it even last week from Jack Straw, the, the former Foreign Secretary at the time, who, who, who really kind of distilled Britain's defence. And again, it's something that you're right, we should bear in mind. I mean, his basic point was, look, we were the Americans' closest ally. Tony Blair was in the 
in the position of trying to make sure that <laughs> continued after President Clinton had gone. Along came 9-11, and suddenly this ally that we were so close to, its whole worldview changed, and we basically decided to go along with them. We hoped that, that it would lead to the disarmament of Iraq and, and not war, but essentially, once we were in bed with them, well, the rest is history. The Lord uh, Goldsmith, the Attorney General at the time, um, a very, very, very curious cross-examination. I mean, he, he, he was the guy that was, say, was supposed to say to the Prime Minister, look, uh, this is legal or not, and he had some doubts. Um, it got the, I got the impression that um, Mr Blair was not very keen to have legal advice too early. Well, I think that's certainly the criticism that was made by two other characters that you heard from, Elizabeth Wilmshurst, again, an old contact of mine. She used to be the, the legal advisor to the British Mission at the UN and, and Sir Michael Wood, who, who, who made the point that it seemed as he if... He was Jack Straw's legal advisor. Absolutely, oh. and they made the point that it seemed as if the Attorney General's final and all-important legal say-so was seen as some sort of impediment that, that just had to be got over. So, yeah, that's the impression that, that came out of the testimony, and, well, um, no doubt Mr Blair will be questioned about it tomorrow. Looking back over the, the few weeks, and, and this week in particular, uh, apart from Alistair Campbell, um, there's nobody has said anything much in support of Mr Blair before his trial. Is it, it's not a trial, of course, but you know what I mean. Uh, no, I, I, I guess that's about right. I suppose you could add Jonathan Powell, his former foreign policy advisor, and, and David Manning to some extent. But, but I think you, know, you are going to see some people characterising this. You've seen people characterising this as a slightly unsightly spectacle of lots of people deserting their former boss and doing so through their testimony, which has, of course, raised questions in the editorial pages. You know, what on earth were you doing when we were headed down this path? And why didn't you, like Elizabeth Wilmshurst, resign? And we have, of course, heard from... There's been newspaper columns from people like McShane, a Labour, former Labour minister, saying... The European minister. Absolutely, <laughs> saying, come on, where was everybody? Where was the media who've been doing all this negative reporting? An awful lot of you were cheerleaders for it. Uh, you know, a decision was made. There is no smoking gun. There's no conspiracy. Uh, a decision was taken. You may disagree with it, but, but there isn't anything underneath it all. Um, there's one other side to this, uh, and that is that when Mr Blair appears, and given that he is not going to say, yeah, I actually made a bit of a haul except that, didn't I? He may actually say something like, well, at the time, that was my judgment, and, you know, I, I stand by my judgment. That's it, really, for Chilcot, isn't it? They may get other people along. I mean, for example, Claire Short next week and Jack Straw's back next week. But that's it. We've all been waiting, really, for the Blair Witch trial. Well, I think, I think there's no doubt that all roads have been headed in this direction. It's partly, if you think back over the, some of the testimony, we've heard a couple of examples this week where you've had bits where the panel have been asking a witness, well, you know, what, what, you know, what did Mr Blair think about that? And they've said, well, you better ask him. So mm. all, all roads have been leading to this moment. That there's no doubt about that. I think you're absolutely right that an awful lot of what the Prime Minister will say is, you know, I made the judgment in good faith at the time, and, and that, is, that is my defence. And certainly sources close to the Prime Minister say he remains confident that what he did was right and that he will make a, a robust defence. Just one other point, though. It's also been stated by people like uh, Lord Hutton, uh, who did a previous inquiry, that... 
although everyone says Mr Blair is super articulate and he'll walk on water and the panel won't lay a glove on him, he's never before had to defend the whole range of events leading up to Iraq, the invasion, the planning and the aftermath. He's, had to be, he's been questioned by little bits of the policy, but this is the first time that he's had to do the whole lot, and I suspect that that, that will be a strain. Okay. Um, Rob Watson, thank you very much. Uh, you're here next week, are you? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> See you then. Bye now. Bye. Um, Mike, <laughs> talk about the end of the Peer Show, uh, uh, Mike Clark. There is something about it which says, uh, let's get Blair. There's a public thing, isn't it? He's condemned. That's it. It doesn't yeah. matter what he says. Yeah, the pu- I mean, a lot of the public <clears throat> and the media have forgotten what this Chilcot inquiry is all about, which is to establish the historical record as best mm. can be established. It's, it's a question of what happened, not was it justified in that way. And the other thing I think that, I mean, Rob is exactly right. People are sort of deserting Blair because you know, what, what happened here was a controversial and difficult policy and Blair decided, I will lead it. I will show leadership. Mm. And so he Push Which he did in most things. Yeah, he did. It was his instinct, just like Mrs. Thatcher. Clause four. And he, exactly. Thing. So he, he he took an issue and he he tried to lead it by all means that he could, you know, through propaganda, through policy, through pushing, cajoling, and you know, uh, brutalizing some people. And the fact is, it didn't work. It was not ultimately successful and so the leader therefore has to take the blame and people will start mm. as it were distancing themselves from that failure mm. um, as they say you know success has many fathers but failure is an orphan right and so he's in the firing line yeah now, but what about the americans i've, I've just wondered a lot if i thought right at the beginning the americans are not going to like this inquiry because no. stuff will come out which no and i mean the, you see the other thing that that i think this, this inquiry will will confirm is that Blair was also, rightly or wrongly, he was also unlucky because his instinct was to stand with the United States and it would have been, would have been very difficult for him to do anything much different from that. But he happened to coincide with the most foolish and most reckless American administration for well over a century. So he had the, he had the worst possible American president and team to deal with. Mm. Can I just ask the three of you, I mean, and then I want to move on to Northern Ireland. Those the three of you... Um, Blair's um, coming tomorrow. Mr. Blair's coming tomorrow. Um, John, do you get a sense that uh, from this point onwards nobody will even talk about Blair very much? Well, no, I think this is something he'll live with. It'll be the albatross around his neck regardless of what he says tomorrow. Because even though, as, as Michael said, it is a question of leadership, a question of instinct, a question of faith, it is also basically a question of justifying his actions. And as we had uh, yesterday, uh, Lord Goldsmith was very elusive on how he became converted. He went on the road to Damascus, which took him to Washington. He met the uh, Wally Taft IV, who discussed the question of whether there was a justification for the authorization of force. He never explained to the inquiry the arguments given to him that converted him. They never, never asked him either. And never asked him. There was only one time when he seemed to be uh, uh, sort of uh, caught on the wrong foot, and that was when Sir Roderick Lyne asked him about the difference between the public perception of the French position and uh, the private assurances given by the French to the Americans. Rod Lyne asked him, why didn't you go to the French? 
And he hesitated for quite a long time and then said, well, I couldn't do that. Uh, this would have been uh, a propaganda victory for Saddam Hussein. But then Rodline came back again and said, but you could have done it by confidential diplomatic channels. We still haven't had an answer on justification, and that's what Blair has got to face up to tomorrow. Ginny Hill. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to bring this back to the current debate about Good. how to respond in Yemen because uh, there was a very prominent mm. Yemeni mm. sheikh who was saying in the run-up to mm. London meeting yesterday that this was going to be a conference to plan the invasion mm. of Yemen. And in the minds mm. of Yemeni public opinion, they're That's very it. hostile to mm. American policy in the Middle East, mm. partly because of a series mm. of events that have taken place over the last few decades, but particularly around the invasion of Iraq. This is still a very live wound in the region, and it's complicating Western policy in response to the current challenges in mm. Yemen, not just around counterterrorism because of the sensitivity of cooperating with Britain and America, but also because of the civil war that's taking place in the north of Yemen um, on the border with Saudi Arabia. The Yemeni government is making the allegations that Iran is involved in backing this rebellion and the Saudis have got involved. There's this narrative that's developing about a regional proxy war between Saudi and Iran which has grown directly out of Iranian expansion as a result of the toppling of Saddam Hussein. But so the basic still... thing here is not so much the regional aspect, it is the fact that 179 Britons died in that because of a decision taken by the British Prime Minister. Unless he justifies that, there'll be a lot of bitterness still in the hearts of all these people. But, but it, and your point, Jenny, is that the, the Chilcot inquiry mm. actually could be harming our relations with Middle Eastern states because we're not moving on or because we're, yeah, yes. we think we're being honest about it, but does it look as if mm. it's just justifying the, the, the conspiracy theories? I think on the ground in Yemen, certainly, there yeah. would be, nobody would place any faith in the inquiry because it yeah. seemed to be an official inquiry and it will come to the right conclusions. Mm. Yes. But this is as a view from the Yemeni street. Um, and I, I, that, the reason that I think it's relevant is just that the, the legacy of a Iraq is still playing out on in current decision making. Yeah. It's interesting because what we think of it as a cathartic exercise, no, but I, actually, from your perspective, or the perspective of what you study, it may be making everything worse. Well, it, 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 the legacy is still present, yeah. and it's certainly complicating our policy options now, and we're trying to be effective in, in, in Yemen. Okay, let's go to Northern Ireland, another legacy problem. For months, Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party, Northern Ireland's two biggest political parties, have been arguing over the transfer of policing and justice powers from Westminster to the Stormont. Sinn Féin wants the completion of devolution to happen as soon as possible, but the DUP argues there must be unionist, and I quote, community confidence before powers are put in the hands of local politicians. On the line from Belfast, Chris Ryder. Um, they've been talking quite hard for three days. Um, Chris, um, anywhere? I don't think so, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Um, I think what people haven't realised is that Peter Robinson hasn't been able to carry his party He's on this. He's the DUP leader. The yeah. DUP leader. He hasn't been able to carry his party on this through the closing months of last year, despite Sinn Féin putting on the pressure and threatening, threatening to collapse the executive and the power-sharing administration. Now, Robinson and his wife became embroiled in a scandal. She had an affair with a 19-year-old boy. She got money for him to, to uh, open a cafe from two wealthy property developers. And that scandal has now sort of uh, 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 directly affected Peter Robinson himself because he has stood aside temporarily as First Minister. Now, the reason why Robinson couldn't carry his party was there, uh, there's a hardline lump there who are opposed to being in, in power with Sinn Féin. They're only there very reluctantly. And they are opposed to the devolution of policing and justice. And they're also concerned about their own political futures because there's a former member of the party called Jim Allister who leads the traditional unionist voice. 
they took a big slice of DUP support uh, at the European elections last summer. And the DUP hardliners fear that if they compromise in policing and justice, they seem to be uh, making uh, further inroads with Sinn Féin, and that, that's going to damage them at the polls. The general election is just on the corner, and they're also uh, uh, desperately concerned about their futures. OK, so look, if, the, if that's she... The real, that's the real uh, hinge of the, of the deadlock. OK. Now, if, um, if it continues... I mean, and the Prime Minister is saying that if they don't sort it out by tomorrow morning, that's Friday, then uh, he and uh, the Irish Taoiseach have kind of got a plan, they'll book forward. Well, it seems a bit late for that. But if it doesn't work, Sinn Féin threatens they'll walk out of the Assembly. If they yes. walk out of the Assembly, you've got to have an election for the Assembly. The DUP actually don't want that, do they? No, they're afraid to go to the polls. Sinn Féin aren't, there to, aren't that bothered. Um, in fact, going to the polls and seem to have... Uh, stood up to the DUP would be good for them uh, in the present climate, but also uh, hit back at their critics because they're accused of settling for a partitionist uh, deal by, by participating at Stormont, uh, and that's causing great difficulty for them, particularly among their, their, their supporters in the south of Ireland, where they've suffered a whole lot of defections recently and where their electoral support has slid away consistently in any elections that have taken place. So this would give them a chance to show that they're tough and that they uh, are not prepared to work along to a partitionist agenda. So uh, th 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 that's one of the difficulties. Now, the other great difficulty is that the DUP are, are, are laying down uh, as a precondition the fact that there must be a new, a new replacement for the Prades Commission and new measures to deal with controversial Prades. So presumably the Orange Order, the President's Orange Order, is pushing for this? Well, their shadow's hanging over the DUP position, and that, of course, is, is irritating Sinn Féin to a very large extent. And uh, Jerry Adams said no later than this afternoon that he doesn't believe that there should be any linkage between these two problems, the devolution of policing and justice and the control of parades. He said that should be handled, that should be handled at a local level between the people affected by the parades. And um, so it would seem to me that if I was asked to put my uh, head on the block and, and, and make a prediction that, that there, won't, there won't be a deal uh, and that the, the Prime Minister's proposals, uh, if they are put on the table tomorrow, will not really solve the problem. Or if they do, it'll only be a fudge and it will not really uh, hold together for very long. Chris, um, is this a, it's not a cliche entirely, but is this a generational thing? Now, the people that we're talking about, certainly um, in Sinn Féin, they've battled this for all their lives, and so have their forefathers. Is it a, a younger generation waiting for it to say, come on, let's just do it, let's just... Well, there, there is a vast groundswell of ordinary public opinion who are irritated beyond belief at, at, at the way the policy... If you listen to the local phone-ins here, people are furious uh, that, that politicians are not getting on with the job they were elected to do to deal with health and education and, and all these other social problems, unemployment, the economy. But the, the difficulty is that there is huge political apathy and that, that people of ability in the community do not go into politics because it's seen as such a discredited, uh, shambolic uh, profession. 
And so uh, anyone of ability who, who in any other society would find uh, participating in public life to be a worthwhile endeavour just shuns it here and they go on with either making their own business work or, or, or following their own profession. And the people who are the younger people coming into the parties are, are just as, as intransigent as, as the, the people who are, who are there. Uh, and I mean, the DUP is a perfect example of that, and indeed uh, with Sinn Féin. But the, the vast majority of young people um, who perhaps should aspire to go into public life look away the other way and don't have anything to do with it. Right. Chris Ryder, Belfast, thank you very much indeed. Here's a thought. We've been slagging off. Well, we haven't been slagging off Tony Blair. We wouldn't do that. But, I mean, we've been slagging off Tony Blair in a way or showing people off. Mike, uh, Northern Ireland, you look back, this is Tony Blair's great legacy. I mean, he was... He was mustard, wasn't he? He hung in there, and it was it was his pushing. I know he's got Mitchell and he's got Clinton, etc., with him. Uh, but it's almost as if the British government now just sort of said, "Well, look, you know, that's done." Yes, uh, it's as if we're going back a little bit to the 1970s mm. in terms of British government attitudes. That, that Tony Blair can can walk away from office mm. and say, "One of my legacies is that I brought mm. the Northern Ireland process to an end. The, I, I ended mm. the troubles. I, mm. I seized the moment, made the most of it." And of course, the, the peace that we have in Northern Ireland is still pretty fragile. Mm. It's not. I don't think we could mm. go back to where we were in the troubles. But the, the, mm. I mean, exactly as Chris Ryder said, that you know, the mm. criminality that was left over from mm. the process, that the failure mm. of the political classes, as we'd say, in Northern Ireland to represent mm. people and the, the, the disillusionment mm. with that mm. political process um, leaves, a, leaves a vacuum. Mm. And that vacuum will be filled mm. by disorder and, and relatively small, petty squabbles. Mm. And it comes back to the sort of tribalism which Northern mm. Ireland represents. And it's, yeah. a, it's a disgrace to our society in general that we've tolerated it for so it's long. It's United Kingdom, which well, if you're comfortable that, over this side of the water, mm, you don't bother exactly. about it. But the very exactly. fact that it is Blair's legacy explains why Gordon Brown has invested so much time in this problem. I mean, just stay there for two and a half days when he should have been here in London dealing with the Yemen, dealing with Afghanistan. And Prime and, Minister's Question Time. And he wants to sustain something mm. of that legacy. Oh, he had a very good reason not to be at Prime Minister's Question yes. Time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Um, listen, let's take perhaps this bit of a sideways look at some of the things we've talked about. Uh, can I come back to um, Lord Goldsmith, the former Attorney General? Um, I thought we have... Uh, the, the first thing that struck me was this. Uh, he kept talking about John, uh, the client. It was and it took me ages to figure out... He was talking about the Prime Minister. It was extraordinary. It was as if um, Blair was, was paying him money for his advice, and therefore that probably explains why he was so reluctant to uh, rush into that advice because it might have built up, you know, £250 an hour. But it seemed extraordinary that Goldsmith was not being asked for his advice much earlier. And then again, equally extraordinary... In fact, he was told more or less that he didn't want it. He didn't want to, and when he submitted it, it wasn't very popular. Another aspect that surprised me was that he was not in the Cabinet when the issues of... Uh, Iraq, which had all sorts of legal implications, were there on the table, and he did not think that was extraordinary. And then again, you know, if he has to give a view, why does he not take into account the expertise of the Foreign Office? I'm not saying that because of all my experience with them, but, I mean, the international lawyers in the Foreign Office are far more experienced in all aspects of international law, like law of the sea, uh, compensation for Britons abroad, whereas the Attorney General has got a lot of his time invested in domestic affairs, and therefore he should have paid mm. far more attention to them. But the only time that he intervened was to rebuke, in a sense, uh, Jack Straw 
off of being so offhand and dismissing the legal advice he got from his advisors. It was so that, that Goldsmith objected to the advice, it was objected to the way in which it was dismissed. You see, it's, it's a, a point here, isn't there, um, uh, Mike Clark? Uh, when, uh, when Sir Michael Wood, the legal advisor mm-hmm. to the then Foreign Secretary mm-hmm. Jack Straw, said, listen, I think that this could be illegal. Yeah. Jack Straw told him not to be too dogmatic. <laughs> well, that's the point. You see, pe- the, the people tend to assume that international lawyers mm. are gatekeepers to the mystique, mm. that once you're an international lawyer, you can say mm. that something is either legal or not. But mm. as in all cases, I mean, international lawyers are like plumbers. Mm. They'll try a few things <laughs> and see if it works. Try this. If that doesn't work, we'll try that. Um, and what you're trying to do is construct a claim mm. which may be stronger or less mm. strong. And what the Attorney General was asked to do is to say, how strong is our claim and will it wash elsewhere? Washes in the United States, will it wash in other countries? But and so that's what they ended up with. He's got to stand out in a court, although the International Court of Criminal uh, was not established at that particular time, they had to have the general aspect of legitimacy, which uh, Jeremy Greenstock raised, was part and parcel of legality. That it it exactly. wasn't just a being. Absolutely. But see, right. what they were thinking of is that in Kosovo in 1999, there was no UN resolution yeah. authorizing force, but there was a NATO mm. resolution yeah. which was good enough mm. and was not sufficiently challenged mm. in in- international mm. environment. And most people didn't care. Exactly. Mm. And, and, and it worked, mm. yeah. uh, roughly. Yeah. And so Kosovo is not mm. regarded as, as a, a, an action of dubious legality. Mm. And so what they had in, in Iraq was a series of, of 14 mm. UN resolutions, all of which Saddam was in breach of, but not a resolution recently that authorized the use of force. But you see, there's another side of this. Goldsmith, Lord Goldsmith, mm. Attorney General, the Prime Minister's legal advisor, cannot get in to see the Prime Minister. And this is the most remarkable thing. What is this? I mean, when you were talking Jenny, earlier on about, well, you know, in the Yemen, uh, people look at it and say, well, it's an official inquiry, etc. It doesn't really matter. It's all fixed, etc. I'm beginning to believe they're right. Uh, you, you get a sense that like anything else that goes on in the world, that sometimes we look at places like the Yemen and say, oh, of course, you know, they don't have the, the system of us, the democratic mm. system. Of they do have the common sense system and it works where they are. Mm. Well, they do actually have a democracy in Yemen, but yes. the, it, it doesn't necessarily run along the same lines here. But I think your point about whether or not this is a process of catharsis may play out in a particular way here, but would be perceived in a very different way elsewhere in, mm. in the Middle East. And many in the Middle East would say, well, where's the accountability? Yes, and you and, and because we go around talking about accountability, don't we? And well, yet, it's important now because at least one benefit of the way it was handled by Blair is that henceforth, no British army will go to war without the proper sanction of Parliament. And there, it's not a question of the leadership making a decision by instinct or any other way. There, it will have to be justified. And this is where at least we've gained something from this dreadful drama. When you're talking about the, uh, the cost of lawyers, um, the wonderful George Robertson addressed a dinner uh, of lawyers, 200 of them, and he started his speech by saying, I'm very pleased to address so many lawyers in one place, considering what it would cost me to address you all individually. <laughs> like a cartoon in the Times which had uh, the inquiry portrayed there and Blair having finished giving his evidence then turns to him and said that'll be £200,000 plus expenses. Yes. I tell you there is is something else here because um, for most of us we've had this discussion before Mike Clark Mm. that uh, this inquiry is not for the likes of 
if I may say so, you as the director of the Royal Nice Service Institute, you've been too close to it in a way. You know all about it, or you think you know quite a lot of yeah. about it. And that's the, reasonable. I mean, the, the, the inquiry seems to give us chapter and verse on things we believed, or it, it refines the picture. It's a wonderful, but it doesn't change the picture. No, Most it, of us have had this picture in our minds for some no, time. And John Chilcott uh, sees it as, a, uh, as an historical process, yes. and there are two yeah. historians on, 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 on the board. Um, but for most of us, we look and we think, my goodness, mm. is this how we were governed mm. or yeah. not? Yeah. And that Absolutely. is the, tr- and that's the terrible thing. It may, that's one of the reasons why the government wanted not mm. to have this until they were forced into it. Uh, they've, you know, they put it back and put it back, because this is what official mm. historians normally do mm. 20 years afterwards, and everyone can say, oh, well, that was a long time ago, but this wasn't a long time ago. And it's not totally objective in as much as the... the composition of the inquiry was chosen by Gordon Brown and why he chose two uh, professional historians uh, and nobody with a, a good experience of Whitehall, uh, I can understand. Uh, well, I think, I mean, uh, uh, Laurie Friedman, for example, I'm mean, the historian of the Falklands War, so I think he's got a... Yes. Got but, a I mean, you don't need two historians. Out of, yes. uh, out but they've of gone through tens of thousands of documents. The, po- the point yes. is, they've seen everything mm. that an official historian would see, plus they've done interviews with more people than an official historian would normally interview because they're all still alive yes. and they're still more or less compass mentors. By the time an official historian gets going. Some are dead, some are forgotten, in some 50 are years time or Exactly. So, so what they'll come up with is an official history that's probably more accurate than any other we Listen, would get. But you know what? The documents have not been unclassified. This is another weakness of the whole No, no, history. but they've seen them. Mm. They've, they've seen, seen them. them. And, and whether they're reflected or not yeah. in the final... The, the importance of the final report is the fact that it's going to reflect mm. far more than we've actually been able to watch yeah. from the, in the room. Mm-hmm. Listen, I want to g- uh, go to uh, Washington, the um, Centre for Strategic International Studies, and Dr. Karen von Hippel. Karen, is, in, in, in America, is this uh, Chilcot, this in, in Iraq inquiry, is it, does it play there? Do people get embarrassed about it? No, I mean, I, it hasn't been on the news really at all here. I've been, I've been sort of surprised by that, and I've been trying to follow it myself, and it's hard to find. Um, I have to go to the BBC websites or, or some of the British newspaper sites, but we really haven't been hearing very much about it at all. Right. Um, and is there a process in the United States where this sort of inquiry can happen? Presumably a congressional inquiry could happen uh, that would have, the same, would have the same process? Yeah, I suppose there are so many things that you could dig out from the Bush administration that it's hard to know where to start. Um, they're, they're really trying to you know, go forward right now and not spend so much time um, dealing with you know, so many of the problems that we had during the Bush administration, not just the Iraq war, but then subsets of that, such as Guantanamo and all these other issues that have really been plaguing uh, a number of people here. Um, while we have enormous economic problems, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are not necessarily going in the right directions, etc. So I think there's a balancing act, really. Okay, we've got the Afghanistan conference on today. I mean, it seems remarkable you can carry all these people to, to London and you just do it in a day. Um, but is there in, in, in Washington, is is a conference like this important or is there an agenda which says, well, it doesn't matter what happens at that conference, we're, we're going to have to go ahead anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important because it's going to help focus the minds of not only the Afghan government but also the international community to really try to harmonize their work together. I don't think anyone expects some great revolution to happen at the meeting. On the other hand, it's a process, and I think that they really do need to make some fundamental changes, uh, both in coordinating international aid, putting it through the Afghan government, and, of course, the Afghan government side is dealing with corruption and really beefing up the security um, uh, security sector in Afghanistan. So there are a number of things that do need to be changed, but it's going to happen 
you know, slowly, the meeting can help cement a lot of the commitments. Yeah. Uh, President Karzai is always getting slagged off, isn't he? I mean, he, they say, well, you know, he's not much good or he's into the corruption. He's not going to be able to fix it. Is that misunderstanding how Afghanistan works? Well, I mean, I, you know, we, there's certainly problems with him. On the other hand, I think that it's, you know, the reforms in Afghanistan are far bigger than one person. It's rebuilding governance from the ground level up. And I think there will be a, a, a very big focus on the international community now on subnational governance. And, you know, how do you build it up at the local level, of course, while not undermining the center? I think they see Karzai as someone they can work with, even though he has been problematic in the past. So I think they're everyone is being quite practical about how to move forward and really putting a lot of behind-the-scenes pressure on him uh, to try to make the necessary changes. Our Western leaders have a habit, don't they, of sort of picking on someone and saying, right, he's our boy, he'll be all right. I mean, I go back to, um, I suppose, Iraq and uh, even um, uh, Saddam Hussein. We liked him at one time when he was beating up on the, on the, on the Iranians. Then General uh, Musharraf, we thought he was all right, then he had to go. Um, I mean, eventually we're going to we're going to be supporting uh, uh, Mullah Omar, aren't we, and have him as the next president of uh, of Afghanistan? God, I hope not. I hope not. I mean, we do have a, a problem of focusing on individuals, and we really need to start focusing on institutions and building up institutions so that we won't have to worry so much about the individuals at the top. Um, I think that if there is some sort of reconciliation with Mullah Omar, I don't think there's any chance of him him coming into the government, but there will potentially be um, ministries or maybe even parts of the country that uh, could be under the rule of some of the Taliban leaders, but I think they would have to renounce violence uh, and make a commitment to the democratic process. Um, stay, stay with us. I want to bring in a couple of people here. Uh, Mike, we, we do, though. I mean, thinking, just listening to uh, Chris Ryder talk about Northern Ireland, uh, I mean, Martin McGuinness, we were... Uh, he was shooting at us, or we were shooting at him, mm. or, or whatever, not long ago, and suddenly <clears throat> we want him to succeed. Oh, this goes back to Jomo Kenyatta in, in Kenya, yeah. and, Kenya. And, you know, and before that. Macarius in Cyprus. Absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> All of these um, you know, counterinsurgency, nation-building uh, campaigns, however we mm. phrase them, they all end in the same way, as we've said around this table before. They all You, you mm. declare victory and leave, and there is some sort of accommodation in some sort of national unity framework with some of the people you fought with. And so the key question is, which, who are the some of the people you fought with? In the case of the Taliban, I mean, the, the view now is, well, okay, you can peel away some of the $10 Taliban, those who do it for money. You can peel away some of the warlords who fight with the Taliban but not for the Taliban. So you can perhaps get, you know, Hekmatia in, into government if you could trust him far enough, etc. You could do some things like that. And then you're left with hardcore Taliban leaders, and you've got to do something about that. And how many are there? Maybe orders of magnitude, 20,000, 30,000? Yeah. Karen, um, Pakistan, where does it fit in now? Well, we have a very weak civilian-led government. Uh, they're still deeply angry at the United States for the drone attacks in particular, although there seems to be Pakistani government um, acceptance uh, or involvement, at least in some of the targeting. But there's still an enormous... Um, amount of anger in Pakistan uh, amongst the public at the United States. So we're really dealing with an enormous trust deficit. At the same time, we're putting pressure on them to uh, go after the Taliban. Now, what they've been doing is going after the Pakistani Taliban, those that are attacking uh, parts of Pakistan, cities in Pakistan, civilians in Pakistan, and the Pakistani army. They're still saying we aren't going to go after those members of the Afghan Taliban that do come in and uh, regroup in Pakistan because we may need them later in Afghanistan if you leave. And so our 
military here and, and our civilian military leadership in particular has been putting a lot of pressure on the Pakistani military to try to go after both. Uh, you know, we've already seen the blowback in Pakistan by the Pakistani Taliban. They used to support them, obviously, as well. So we're having a lot of problems trying to rebuild that, that trust deficit, um, despite the fact that we have enormous amounts of money on the table, seven point five billion dollars over the next five years just for civilian development and even that has angered the Pakistani public so we have a lot of work to do there and we don't want to push too hard because you may end up with another coup <laughs> okay Karen von Hippel thank you very much and uh, by the way enjoy the day job don't you yeah thank okay. you. Uh, Davos is on who knows about Davos as the World Economic Forum 40 years there's the, John, there's the real power. That's the money. Well, that's where the bankers are. And they're spending much of their time justifying their bonus system being restored rather than looking a bit further forward. And, uh, but they know how, how they... to buy the enemy, don't they? Yeah, so they know. They, they know everyone's got his price. Uh, and it seemed to work with them. I don't think it works so easily with the Taliban. But, uh, yes, they don't mess about. They, they say, look, um, if this is the amount of money it takes to join us... We'll but it's pay. important. It was important, wasn't it, to see that uh, mm. uh, President uh, uh, Sarkozy of uh, Mike mm. of, uh, of France chose to go to Davos. Mm. That's where the action is. Yeah, there's the feeling that's that's where the, that's where the money is. That's mm. where the the movers and shakers are. Who some of whom you know don't come into the news very much. Mm. But one of the, the issues Davos has now been going for so long that, that like all these things, it then becomes more of a talking shop mm. than a than, than a, an organisation that moves things along. But people still go. They go. They go because when big names go, all mm. the other names go. Um, I'm more sceptical about Davos than than a few years ago. It, it, it becomes a sort of a high class seminar mm. more than a uh, more than a policy engagement process. Yeah, I mean, uh, President Clinton there today uh, yes, said about right. uh, uh, Haiti. He said, well, he's about Haiti. Yeah, yeah I mean, and he, he said, look, give me the trucks. Yeah. Not like promised, but I need them now. Yes. Now that's where, but I'm just thinking, if you if you translate this into what's going on in in Af the Afghanistan yeah. thing, in, in, in the Yemen thing, Yemen, uh, Jenny, don't you need an enormous amount of money if we're going to buy, buy their future? But one of the paradoxes here that relates to Afghanistan and is that corruption, in a sense, is a shortcut for stability in, mm. in environments where you're creating a new government. In Afghanistan, it happened in 2001. In Yemen, they unified and they introduced democracy in 1990. The best way to deliver a shortcut to stability is payoffs and patronage. But over the long term, that starts to undermine state institutions and build a cult of personality. So there's a, a tension in the state-building agenda between stability and the health of the structure, and I think that, that hasn't really been resolved in any... any of the environments where it's, it's been and, and one of the other things I think that plays into that <clears throat> is that you know the G7 G8 which used to be the sort of centre of power most people say that it's just not appropriate anymore on the other hand the G20 the G2 well yeah the G2 is I mean that's the issue is it the G2 yeah. or is it the G20 and the G20 is actually about the G25 27 actually yeah. now so is that too big I mean Gordon Brown would like to say the G20 is the new forum of world economic and political management and I Gordon Brown did quite a lot to make it work, work. Mm. well that's a neat trick if you can do it but we're stuck somewhere in between the G2 that we can see, the, 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 you know, the two great powers talking to each other, the G20 that we would like to work in a more uh, consensual way that, that brings more more inclusive way, but neither of them are right. And, and at the moment, there's no obvious place where we can say that is the, that is the place where deals get made or momentum gets created. Well, this is why I come back to was the 
conference in London or this conference in London is it very is it absolutely necessary? It does allow people to have voices. Yeah. But no, it's, no it's not. It's not absolutely necessary, yeah. but it, it might even do some good. Yeah, but it might be that the, the really necessary one was it's in Istanbul at the beginning of the Absolutely, week where the yeah, regional yeah. leaders met and say, look, we've yeah. got to sort this out because what Ginny was saying earlier, it stretches right down to Somalia. Sure. And I think what we're, what we're doing is living in a world now of intensive bilateralism. Mm. So in other words, you, you don't have the big conferences until you've had intensive bilaterals between everybody and, every, and anybody. And then you have the, this, the structure of using informal contact groups to resolve specific issues like piracy, Somalia, we now have an informal contact group on Yemen. Mm. You've been discussing the need for something like this in Afghanistan. Right. Hard to, hard to explain to electorates in the democratic mm. world, that's the problem. Tell me something about hard to explain is the fascination that uh, certain people have with Sarah Palin. Well, you have, certainly. Well, I mean, thank you very much. There must be an explanation Come on, of your, the Alaska your, your romance uh, with Sarah. <laughs> Come on, together. I will not have this. We were singing Rosemary together, everybody knows that by now, but the Alaskan hockey mom who nearly made it to the White House, and I tell you, they still do next time round, as you know, uh, Ms. Palin has been nominated for the Fast Eddie Award as SITREP's most quotable personality. And who is not quoting Sarah Palin's? If you ate the front husky, then the view is always the same. Now, here's the latest Palinism sent to us by a former chief ERA, Tom Kopak, Royal Navy, now in Australia. Pigs don't eat bacon. Now, I mean, OK, it may not actually be that funny, um, but it's, it's somehow, it, it, it's rather like, but dogs eat dog. Uh, isn't it? All these sort of wacky sort of things, people turn around and say, yeah, but this is all folksy, but it mm. means something. And when you get down to international negotiation job, as you've done, John, for mm. 25, 30 years... More than that. Oh, dear, has it? Don't, more than don't that. go any further. No, it won't go any further. It's that sort of thing that comes up, and we remember people for yes, what right. they... You remember Sarah in her lack of knowledge of the geography of international relations when she was uh, asked to... Hey, hang on. What is Sarah? You mean Miss Palin? Miss Palin, sorry. Thank you. Uh, Miss Palin was asked uh, about the events in Afghanistan and she highlighted the fact that they were building schools there and she said, this will bring hope and opportunity to our neighbouring country, Afghanistan. I don't think she realised how far apart Afghanistan was from Alaska. <laughs> well, there's nothing very far away from Alaska, as everybody knows. Listen, um, uh, we're going to go very shortly. Except... Uh, Mike Clark, the Defence Green Paper. When's yes. that? Uh, probably February the 3rd, maybe February the 4th. Next so week. next week we will see it and this will take our discussion on a little bit further. OK, and don't forget, uh, uh, pigs don't eat bacon. you got one, send it to us. That's it for this week. My thanks to Michael Clark, John Dickey and Ginny Hillway. At the same time next week, we're back on BFPS Radio 2. It's good, isn't it? Four o'clock UK time, of course. Uh, talk to you then. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary, Mary's in the hut. Sit with Christopher Lee.